Before we begin preaching, I want us to remember that uh, our brother and sister John and Shelley are in Haiti this week. Uh, we prayed for them last week. They are serving for a week on medical missions. They departed yesterday, uh, texted me while they were boarding on the plane, so we trust that they've got there safely. So let's just take a moment to pray for them, and then we'll press into the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Lord, we do remember our dear brother and sister as they are in Haiti this week. We pray for what they asked us to pray, that you would keep them safe throughout this whole week as they are in um, what can be dangerous places. Pray that you would also give them strength of body, mind, and soul, that they themselves would be strengthened, that they could strengthen weaker brothers and sisters, and that also that you would give them grace so that through their words and their deeds, through works and their um, uh, speech, uh, that they might help to bring life to diseased bodies and souls. We pray for their teammates who are, um, many of them do not know you, that through their witness and service, that both the people they minister to and minister with might come to know the good news of Jesus Christ. So bless them. I pray that you would encourage them, give them great love for each other and for you, and give them an unquenchable appetite for mission uh, and let them return safely to be an encouragement to us. Answer our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is the part of our service where we press into the preaching of God's Word. We open God's Word, hoping that by it He will open us up. We've got a ton of work to do today, so uh, we'll get right to it. We're, we're in a series that we've been calling Christ Crucified, each week considering a different reason why Jesus Christ died and what God accomplished through the death of Christ when he died. Today we're talking through the idea that Jesus died for our suffering, to make sense of our suffering and help us to face suffering. Uh, Epicurus, an ancient Greek thinker, was credited with this saying, and I want you to hear it. In thinking through the problem of evil and suffering in the world, this is what he said. Listen carefully. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So I don't know if you followed the logic through it. Basically, this is what it says. God allows terrible evil and suffering in the world. And so... He might be all-powerful, but not good enough to end evil and suffering. Or he might be all-good, but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. But what you can't have is a good and powerful God because there is evil and suffering. You can't have both. It's an interesting statement, and, and it seems to contain an airtight logic. It raises the question of suffering. It, it raises the problem of evil. And it raises the question that you've either asked or been asked. Undoubtedly, you've heard it before, which is, how could a good God allow evil and suffering? It's an important question, and one, again, I repeat, that you will either be asked or undoubtedly have asked yourself, how do you make sense of suffering if there is a good God? How can a good God allow evil and suffering? 
And, and the honesty, if you'll be honest in your heart, you're going to approach that question, that problem, in one of two ways. Either that question will not be a question at all, but rather an accusation, a, a statement. It's not an honest inquiry. It's not an honest question. It's more a statement, a declaration, which is, how can there be a God who is good and powerful if there is evil and suffering? And so for some of you, that question, that problem is evidence that there is no God. Or you'll come at that question for what it is, just that, a question. Somewhere in your heart, you're wrestling with how does God fit into all of this? How do you have a world with unspeakable evil and suffering and a good God? How do you make sense of it? And where is God in the face of suffering? I want to contend that into the pitch black darkness of suffering and evil, the cross of Jesus Christ speaks and speaks a word of hope and speaks a word of comfort, and speaks a word of even answer. That Jesus Christ is much closer than you could possibly imagine in the face of suffering. Much nearer than you could dare to hope. Now before I say another word, I want to come clean about something. And that is that I have not suffered much. I have not faced much suffering. And I say that to you... Um, Part of that is just my personality. I feel like I think I have thick skin and things don't phase me as it phases maybe others. But part of that is honestly I have just been spared a great deal of hardship and a great deal of suffering. And I say that because there's a part of me that fears that you'll see right through me. That as I'm talking to you about suffering and, and giving you thoughts to think upon, that you'll see right through me and say, what does he know? What, at the end of the day, does he know? So I'm, I'm coming out with it because I feel like I'm sort of transparent and you'll see right through me anyway. Uh, if we haven't suffered, we're, we're sort of suspicious about people who want to talk about it if they haven't experienced it, right? One thing I do know is that if you're a person who suffered, if someone's going to talk to you about suffering, you want it to come from someone who's been there, right? If you've been hurt, you want to hear from someone who's been hurt. The last thing you want is someone who's had a life of relative ease talk to you about pain and suffering. We are rightly suspicious, cautious, skeptical, hesitant about any such person. So for example, I read a story this week about a boy who was in a terrible car accident. A motorcycle collides with a car, gas tank explodes, he's badly burned. He's lying in the hospital burn unit and his mother is standing there and he's basically begging his mom to just let him pass, to let him die. And the mother is determined, determined to see him through it and to lift his spirits and raise him up. And, and so what she does is invite friend after friend after friend to come and visit him, to speak a good word, to cheer him up. And he refuses to see any of them. Until one day there's a door a knock at the door, and the door opens, and quickly there's a, a stranger whose face is badly burned, scars all over his body. And the mother quickly shuts the door, not wanting her son to see, hoping that he wouldn't see it and somehow be discouraged. And yet the boy saw and insisted that the man be let in. And in the conversation that followed, this man 
convinces the boy there is reason to live. If you've suffered, you want to hear from someone who's suffered. Right? Otherwise, you are rightly skeptical, cautious, hesitant. If you're going to hear a word of comfort or hope in the midst of your suffering, you want it to come from someone who's been there. Which is why it's really important that you know Jesus suffered. Jesus has been there. It is really important that you know Jesus has been there. Like when you think of Jesus, you think of him sort of like Superman. So he looks like us, but he didn't really feel anything. The bullet sort of bounced off his chest. That is not who Jesus was. Though fully God, he became fully man so that he honestly felt everything you have ever felt and then some. So that if you're hesitant, as I would be, to hear anything I would have to say, throw that aside. But hear from Jesus. And hear his words because I'm telling you he's been there. He has suffered so that when he says a word to you in the midst of your suffering, you have great reason to hear, great reason even to believe. And so what we want to do today is hear from God's word, from his mouth, as one who's been there, how do we make, face, how do we make sense of suffering? Where is God in the face of suffering? How could a good God allow suffering? And if you'll go through those with me, you might even ask with me, how do we face suffering like Jesus? How do we suffer well? Let's pray, ask the Lord for his help, and then we'll consider God's word together. Father, I am praying to you now not to sprinkle magic or fairy dust onto the top part of a sermon. I'm praying an honest prayer of health, help for our church, that you would even now help us to hear your word, give us the strength to persevere through um, a number of thoughts. I pray that you would give our minds clarity, attentiveness, to consider deep truths, meaty truths, even truths that are not easy to digest. And I pray you would make yourself known. Give to thy word success. Overcome every effort of our enemy to hide your face and show to us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Answer this prayer better than we prayed it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how do we make sense of suffering? Where is God in the face of suffering? How could a good God allow suffering? In the beginning, I said to you that we can come to that question in one of two ways. Either it'll be a question or it will, in fact, be an accusation. It, it'll be an accusation. It's not a question at all. It's a, a statement, a declaration that there can't be a good God since there is evil and suffering. If you're there, I want to give you permission to be there, to be honest, because that's where I want us to start. I want us to consider that part first. How do we consider a good God in the face of suffering? Because one of the things we'll do is we'll leap from this idea that since there is evil and suffering in the world, there can't be a good and all-powerful God. So we want to start there, right? Since there is so much evil and suffering in the world, natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, wars, genocide, murders, rapes, injustice, slavery, disease, famine, poverty. And as I say those words, that's not just a laundry list to throw out there. Each of those words contains within it untold suffering, unspeakable horror in the world. 
And, and we could keep going on and on, not to mention all the personal hardships you faced in your own life. And so as far as you're concerned, if you're in this part, if you've got this part of you that is accusing, that is declaring that there can't be a God, what happens for us is since there is so much pointless suffering in the world, you conclude that there is no God, that there can't be a God. Since pointless suffering exists, God cannot exist. Tim Keller, a pastor from New York, has written much on this and has rightly noticed that behind that sentence lies a huge assumption. Behind that sentence that since there is pointless suffering in the world, there cannot be God, lies a huge assumption. Namely, that if it appears pointless to you, it must be pointless. The assumption is that if there is no point in your eyes, there therefore must be no point. That if you and I cannot plumb the depths of the universe to understand good reasons behind suffering, that there therefore can't be good reasons for suffering. Needless to say, that is a huge amount of faith in one's own cognitive ability. That's a huge leap of faith to trust in one's own sense to make sense of all things. That if you can't see the good in it, therefore there can't be any good in it. That's a huge assumption. And I want to say to you even a faulty assumption. Because many of you who have suffered, your own experience tells you that though you would never wish for suffering, though you would not wish it on anyone, Great good, great personal growth has come because you've endured suffering. Some of you would even say that you wouldn't change a thing if you could. I'm not making light of suffering. I'm not minimizing suffering. I'm just saying even some of you would say that good has come from evil. In the scriptures, for example, you're told of this story of a man named Joseph. So in the Old Testament, if you remember, there's a, a man named Joseph, a young boy who's sold out by his punk brothers. These rascal scoundrels who hate him basically sell him into slavery. And if you know the story of Joseph, he faces untold, unjust suffering. He's sold into slavery, taken away from his home. He's imprisoned for something he hasn't done, accused of crimes he has not committed, unspeakable suffering. And yet, by the end of the story, in Genesis 50, Joseph says this, What you intended for evil, God meant for good. So that through those series of events, as it happened, literally thousands of lives were saved. Because through those series of events, he was put into a position of power and made the kind of man that was then used to literally save the lives of thousands. And so what the scriptures say is that even in that evil, God had planned and made for good. Now hear me, I am not saying that in every situation, in every circumstance of suffering, I could point to you the good reason. I'm just saying that if we could see some of them, is it not at least possible that God could see all of them? Is it not at least possible if within our finite minds we can see some of the good that God can see 
all of it, that God, infinite, could have reasons that you do not yet understand or know. That if God is big enough for you to be mad at because you're convinced he could end suffering and evil, then is he not at least big enough to at least possibly have answers you don't understand? Right? If you're convinced God is so much bigger than you that he could literally end suffering, if you credit him with being that big and you're mad at him for not doing it, isn't it at least possible that he's big enough also to have reasons that you cannot understand? Will you not credit him with the second part as well? That God, infinite, could have reasons for evil and suffering that we don't know. In fact, I want to press you a little further and say to you that the question, the objection of a good God because there is evil and suffering, rather than being evidence against him, might actually unwittingly be evidence for him. Let me explain. Rather than this question proving that there is no God, it might actually serve as evidence that he is. Here's what I mean. If there is no God, if you and I are the product of natural selection, if all that we see is because of genetic mutations, because of firings of electrons and genetic code, if all we see is survival of the fittest, the species survive, the strong eat the weak, then why should we care that there is death or disease or suffering? What is suffering? You see that happening in the world all the time. The strong eat the weak. That's the way it is. Why would you complain that that's the way it is. If there is no God, the universe does not care that animals die or suffer. The strong eat the weak. That's the way it is. If there is no God, where do you or I even go to define what good or evil is or what morality is? How do we choose between them? If there is no God, where do I ultimately go to know what is good or what is evil? Right? Think through this with me for a second. Where, where would I go? Do I turn inward? There's no God. Where do I go to decide between right and wrong? I turn inward? The problem is my impulses, inward impulses, differ over time, right? So sometimes I feel like loving my neighbor. Sometimes I feel like killing my neighbor. Where do I go to choose between which option to pursue? Can I introduce a third internal impulse? How does that weigh between the two? Can I go outward? And so you say, you know what it is? It's consensus. There's no God. It's, it's what everybody thinks. Well, what if you're in Nazi Germany? Then, then where do you go? Because those differ over time. You can't go inward. You can't go outward. And, and are we comfortable with the idea that morality, good and evil, are going to evolve over time? So if this is all the result of genetic mutation, are we going to eventually evolve past the time where it's not good to kill your weaker brother. That when the survival of our species determines or needs it, we're going to be okay with crushing the weak. Because it's strong eat weak. It's the survival of the fittest. A, a week ago, we had an event here called Collision. We watched this documentary of this atheist and this Christian as they debated this topic together. We had lots of good conversation. And one of the huge ones we had was this whole question of morality. If we're just primates that have evolved, what is good and what is evil? 
we had a good friend who was engaged in this dialogue and he said, wait, wait, you can see good even in nature. And so he said, if you study penguins, you'll see that penguins often are monogamous and mate for life. It's funny, you have questions of ultimate reality and it's boiled down to the mating habits of penguins, right? That's how these conversations tend to go. But here's the problem with that. Why should the monogamy of penguins be what's right? Who gives you the right to say that? Why shouldn't it be that we celebrate the strength of the lion that sleeps with whatever it can and eats whatever it can? What, what gives you the right, if there is no God, no outside law, no moral lawgiver, to evaluate which is right and which is wrong? Right? You can't turn inwards. Those differ over time. You can't turn outwards. Those swift swing and change. Where do you go? We could keep talking about this, and I want to invite you to ask questions and converse about it and read and, and dialogue. But, but here's basically what I'm saying. I'm saying to you, if there is no God, there is no evil, which is the reason you objected to God in the first place. You said, how can a good God exist because there's evil, but you've taken the argument away. The, the question collapses on itself. It defeats itself. Rather than proving that there is no God, you give evidence that there is. In reality, your sense of good and evil comes from God. And essentially what we do is we derive and borrow from God what our understanding of good is, only to turn around and accuse Him of not being so. You borrow from God an understanding of good only to then turn around and say, you are not that. Essentially, we climb into God's lap only to slap Him in the face. We borrow from Him the standards by which we're going to judge Him and say that He is not. Now again, I, I don't suggest that that answers the problem of suffering. But what I simply want to suggest is that taking God out of the equation doesn't make it any easier. In fact, the problem only gets worse and much more difficult and much more impossible. But I want us to be honest. If you're suffering, then you're not looking for philosophy. You're not looking for reason or logic or debate. If you're hurting, the question of suffering is much more than an intellectual one for you. Your question of how could God allow suffering is, is not one that you want to bat around while sipping coffee at Starbucks. This is not just something to tickle your mind. If you're a person who suffered, you're asking it because your pillow is soaked with tears. Your heart is broken and this question is much more near and much more personal and much more real. And rather than it being an accusation, it is actually what it is, a question. A question, where is God in the face of suffering? You're not asking an intellectual question. You're saying like the psalmist, where are you? Where are you? How long are you going to hide your face from me? When are you going to see my case? When are you going to come near? If you're there, leave aside the accusation for a second and ask the question with me. 
from a, a suffering heart or from a hurt heart or from a heart that knows suffering is still coming, ask with me, how do you make sense of suffering? Where is God in the face of suffering? How could a good God allow suffering? And if you'll get past the accusation and ask the question with me, I want to give you some truth. Three truths. Three truths to hold so that when your day of sorrow and suffering come, these truths might in turn hold you. Right? Hear me. I have not suffered. I've told you that. But I'm saying this truth, holding these truths, so that when my day of sorrow comes, and it will, and when my day of suffering comes, with great grace and patience, you could speak these truths back to me and remind me and allow these truths that I hold to on that day hold me. And, and maybe if you are suffering, you would allow these truths to hold you. And that is that God stands behind our suffering, with us in our suffering, and has entered into our suffering. God stands behind, with, and in our suffering. God stands behind, with, and in our suffering. God stands behind, with, and in our suffering. All right, walk through the first one with me. God stands behind our suffering. When you open the scriptures, the testimony of the scriptures is that God has created a good world. A good God who is perfect and pure created a good world. Genesis 3, sin enters into the world and ruins it all, breaks it all, fractures it all, wreaks havoc on it all. And into this good world, now you find death and destruction and decay and disease. All of it is ruined. And into this world is also an enemy, John 10 tells us, who is out to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And in all of that, God alone remains good. Hear that. In all of that, God alone remains good. It's like Jesus said to the rich young ruler who came to him and said, good teacher, and he said, you be careful. God alone is good. Don't throw that word good around unless you know God alone is good. So into this world of suffering, you have a good God. Genesis 18, 25 says, God is a judge who always does what is right. Deuteronomy 32, 4, listen. God is a rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Or in the NIV, a faithful God who does no wrong. Some of you have been in church, you've been taught that since you were two, so you know that. That's simple. God is good. He never does iniquity. He never does evil. He never does sin. I need you to hold that tightly for what I'm about to say next. And that is that God is good, and yet He stands sovereignly behind everything in your life, both good and evil. That God is good and he stands sovereignly behind everything in your life, both the days of prosperity and the days of suffering. That God is good and yet he permits, allows, directs, and even ordains suffering in your life. He allows, permits, directs, and even ordains the evil that comes into your life. Here's some scripture. Proverbs 16, verse 4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Amos 3, verse 6. 
Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Ecclesiastes 7 verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Isaiah 45, 7. I form light and I create darkness. I made well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. You remember the story of Job, Job chapter 1. You have this conversation between God and Satan, and in the bullseye is Job. And Satan receives permission, even hear that phrase, receives permission from God to afflict Job, to ruin his life. Before you finish Job chapter 1, you find that like a wave, he just receives one bad news after another. In fact, the servants can't even finish the sentence before the next servant comes and delivers the next bad news. Before chapter 1 is done, servants of his are slaughtered by the sword, fire has fallen and consumed his sheep, the Chaldeans have plundered his camel, and then before that news is finished being said, the next servant comes and says, your children were eating at a banquet and the wind blew and the house collapsed on them. Before he has time to breathe, all of his possessions, all of his pop property and all his posterity, gone. And remember what Job says, Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave... And the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then listen to verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You know why that's in your Bibles? Verse 22. Because what just happened? Satan destroyed Job's life. And Job says, the Lord took it all away. And verse 22 is in your Bible so you know Job didn't make a mistake. Job didn't say it wrong. Job got it right, which is that ultimately, behind everything that happened in his life, including the evil and the suffering, stands a sovereign God. That God permits, allows, directs, and even ordains the suffering and evil in our lives. This is meaty stuff, and it's not easy to digest. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe when they're talking about Aslan, and the girls ask, is he safe? And the beavers say, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. Right? As you're thinking through this, this is meaty stuff. God stands behind our suffering, allowing it, permitting it, directing it, ordaining it into our lives. And you have to ask the question, how can all that be? How is it that God can stand ultimately behind all this evil and suffering, and yet he still be good? How is it that he's not an evildoer? How is it that he's not responsible? How is it that there's evil and suffering, and yet you and I are still responsible for our evil and the suffering. You're asking the good question. How can God be sovereign and man be responsible? How can God be sovereign and man be responsible? 
The scriptures present both and don't try to answer it. The scriptures present both and don't try to reconcile it, doesn't try to resolve it. So you remember the story of Joseph, what we talked about. These lousy brothers sold him out, hated him, threw him in a ditch, sold him, actually stained his clothes in sheep's blood, lied to his father. And Joseph, at the end of all of that, says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God meant it for good. He even says, don't despair, God sent me to Egypt. So which is it, Joseph? Are the brothers responsible, or is God sovereign? Yes. Or, or I'll tell you, a better man than Joseph, Jesus. In Acts 2, after Jesus has died and resurrected and gone back into heaven, Peter preaches a sermon and he says, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews did everything that God had predestined to take place according to his plan. He even says to a crowd, you lawless men killed Jesus and accomplished what God wanted. So which is it? Is it the crowd is responsible, Pilate's responsible, Herod's responsible, Jews and Gentiles, or is it the sovereign plan of God? Yes. In fact, what's interesting in Acts 2, after Peter preaches this sermon, how does the crowd respond? They don't shout, listen, we were mere pawns in God's game. We're, we're not responsible. We're absolved. You don't get any of that. In fact, what you get is they're cut to the heart and say, what do we have to do? And 3,000 of them repent and believe that very day. How does all of that work out? How is God sovereign and man responsible? In my first year in seminary, I took a class called Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility. It was an extra class, one week long, intensive. I didn't even get credit for it. I just had to know. So I sat in, audited the class for free. So I sat there, and for four days, Monday through Thursday, we literally went through for eight hours every passage in the Bible where you see this thing happening. Joseph's story, Israel's story, Jesus' story, Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, everywhere you could find it. So for four days, you just keep hearing, they're responsible, God's sovereign. So you get to Friday, and you're like, all right, fix this for me. Resolve this. And basically, at the end of eight hours, they go, I hope you've learned a lot. Go from here, worship God. <laughs> I, I want my money back, right? Because you've, done, you've just presented this without answering it. On my very first day of seminary, as they were introducing what we were about to do for the next three years, one guy said this. He said, you've come here thinking you're going to get a master of divinity. You're going to leave here realizing you've been mastered by divinity. Nobody masters divinity. God is not a subject you tease out. You are mastered by divinity. You're going to come to this mystery... And you're either going to bow the knee and worship a God who is bigger and more infinite and can hold these tensions with no problem, or you're going to raise fists in defiance and say you are not. He is bigger and greater. And we don't like the mystery, and so we try to get God off the hook. right? We don't like submission, and so we'll say things like, God never intended that. He never would have wanted that into your life. Listen, God is not trying to get off the hook. And then I'll say this to you. Not only is that not biblically true, ultimately it's not helpful. It's not comforting. 
It is no comfort to see that the things in my life happened and God was standing powerlessly by. I am much more better served by a God who is both sovereign and good. You have to hold both, and you can't let go one or the other. If you do, you are in a heap of trouble. The mystery to hold and embrace is that God is both good and sovereign. You let go of one, you've got trouble. If he's good, but not sovereign, or if he's sovereign, but not good, think through that. If he's sovereign, but not good, now you have a God who ordains, permits, directs cancer into your life, suffering, rape, murder, and he's sovereign and he's doing it all for his kicks and his glory and not for your good. That's not scripture. God is working all things together for his glory and our good. But if he's good and not sovereign, now you have a God who weeps helplessly with you as cancer and rape and murder and death fly into your life and he stands powerlessly by saying, I wish I could have, but my hands were tied. No, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. He is both sovereign and good, orchestrating all things for his glory and your good. So I don't know why you're suffering, but I do know that God does. I don't know what good is going to come from your suffering. I do firmly believe that God does. So where is God in the face of suffering? He stands behind. But he also stands with. If you've, if you've followed me that far, press in with me a little further. He stands with us in our suffering. Not only behind our suffering, but with us in our suffering. Where is God in your suffering? He is closer than you could possibly imagine. Nearer than you could ever wish or hope. He's actually with you in your suffering. And I would even add, suffers with you. Not just with you in your suffering, helping you suffer, but actually feels it with you, suffers with you. So in the Old Testament, Israel was in bondage. Exodus tells us that their cries went up to God. God was hearing. God was near enough to hear their cries, hear their complaints. But then Isaiah even says, in their affliction, I was afflicted. So you got to go, whoa, that's different. Not just that he's near enough to hear their suffering, but he says, when they were afflicted, I was afflicted. Or Acts 9, Jesus shows up to Saul as he's about to change him into Paul, this man who had persecuted the church. What does he say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? That's not what he says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting people I love? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? None of that. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Jesus after death and resurrection in heaven, eternal glory, and yet he says, the persecution of my church, I'm being persecuted. That he not only just stands with us in our suffering, but actually suffers with us. That feels the suffering with us. Matthew 25, Jesus says this story and he says, listen, when you fed the poor, when you visited the sick, when you clothed the naked, when you visited the one in prison, what happened? You did it to me. That in some way, Jesus stands in such solidarity with us that he stands with us in our suffering and actually suffers with us. 
That your heartbreak, he's not only near, but that he feels it too. You remember the statue of the big Jesus in Brazil, right? The, the towering one that stands above the city. One poet wrote of a story of a poor man from the slums beneath that city who climbs up to the foot of the statue. This is what he says. I have climbed up to you, Christ, from the filthy, confined quarters down there to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 of us down there in the slums of that splendid city. And you, Christ, do you remain here surrounded by divine glory? Go down there into the slums. Come with me into the slums and live with us down there. Don't stay away from us. Live among us and give us new faith in you and the Father. And the writer writes, if Christ could respond, he would say, I did come to live among you and I live among you still. A God who suffers with us, who feels your pain, who is so near that the psalmist can rightly say, you're my rock, I'm standing on you. You're my tower, I'm running into you. You're my refuge, I'm hiding in you. You're my shield, I'm being protected by you. You are a very near help in times of trouble. All right, if you followed with me that far, follow one more. That God stands behind our suffering, with us in our suffering, and that God has actually entered into our suffering. That God has actually entered into our suffering. You have a God who is not distantly watching, and not even just near, but has entered your world of suffering. John Stott, this great theologian, he writes of this time where he visited a Buddhist temple, or a Buddhist temple. Hear this. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully, respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have to turn away. And in my imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nailed through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his human immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his there is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross of Christ. Jesus stands as the one among all the gods and all the possibilities and all the options who became man to feel and to face what you face. Who has not just stood with you in your suffering, who entered your suffering. Who has suffered. He has been there. That's what I told you in the beginning. He alone has been there. Have you ever had your heart broken? He's been there. Ever felt abandoned by your friends? He's been there. Ever felt rejected or mocked or belittled or made little of? He's been there. Ever been betrayed? He's been there. Ever stand by a grave while someone you loved was put in? He's been there. Ever pray out into the darkness and feel like God had abandoned you? 
He has been there more than you will ever know. He is the only one who has suffered into our suffering. So that 1 Peter 2 says that he could leave for us an example how to suffer. Right? The passage that Jeremy read for us said that he suffered so that we could follow in his footsteps and suffer like Christ. That we could actually suffer like Christ. That we could follow in his footsteps. That you might actually face your sufferings like him. In the passage Jeremy read, it said, when he was reviled, he didn't revile back. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten back. He didn't retaliate. He endured the suffering because he entrusted his father. So, some application for you is you could actually face suffering like Jesus. You could entrust yourself, 1 Peter 2, to God. You could pray like him, your will be done. Right, hear this. You could pray honest but submitted prayers. Jesus literally prayed, please don't let me die. Please take this away. Let me find another way. You are allowed. I want to give you permission to hurt here, to suffer here. But with that prayer, to say with him also, your will be done. Maybe that's what you need to do in your suffering. To believe that God could accomplish good through what you're going through. Or maybe you can endure the suffering and not retaliate like Jesus did. Because you trust the Father. And that you don't need to pay back or retaliate. God could be accomplishing something good through what you're going through. That like Jesus, maybe you could even look beyond the suffering and have hope. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That like Jesus, you could see that beyond this suffering is coming the day when he will make all things right. He will wipe away every tear from your eye and you will be where he is. I'm not promising you every chapter of your life will be a good one. I am promising you the last one will be. He ends the story really well. There is weeping in the night, but there is mourning coming. And you might suffer like him. And the beautiful thing about the cross is, it's not even just an example. Like if all I told you was that the cross was an example for how you should suffer, now go suffer like Jesus, you'd be up a creek with no paddle. You'd have no hope. The cross is more than an example. I heard one person say that Ted Williams once wrote a book about how to be a great hitter. If you know baseball, Ted Williams was a great hitter. Wrote a book about how to stand, how to hold the bat, what posture, when to swing, what to see. You could read that book from cover to cover. You know what the problem is? You're not Ted Williams. You're not as fast as him. You're not as gifted as him. You're not as good as him. You're never going to hit like him. If I told you this is how Jesus suffered, now you go and suffer as well like him, you'd have no hope. But the good news is the cross is more than an example. Because in 1 Peter 2, the passage Jeremy read, it said, He bore our sins, that we might die to sin and live righteous. So what actually happened is your sins were dealt with. The Holy Spirit lives in you now and actually gives you the shot of living the life of Christ. That now you have both the example and the power to live like Jesus, to face suffering like Jesus, to trust God. So I want to close where we started, which is how can a good God allow evil and suffering? And I don't suggest that we've answered the question of problem of suffering. I don't suggest we've answered it. What I do know, though, without a shadow of a doubt, is we know what the answer is not. It's not because he's not there. 
And it's not because he doesn't care. And it's not because he's distanced or removed. Because he is a God who has entered into our suffering. He stands both behind and with and in us in our suffering. I'm going to read you one last story. You can hear it and we'll close. It's a, it's a short play called The Long Silence. Just hear it. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before him, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? They shouted. How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endure terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no reason, no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes, why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man was forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth a leader chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a deformed arthritic, a horribly infirm child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him false, face false charges. Be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then, let him die. Let him die so that there can be no death Doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly all knew that God had served his sentence. Let's pray. Father, we come to you to offer to you an honest prayer. We are a baby church, and many of us are young, I have no idea what sufferings are coming the way of this community. I have no idea what the next 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years hold. I have no idea what accidents 
what funerals, what sorrows we will be with together. And it's because we're so young that I'm asking that you would help us today to hold these truths so that when our day of sorrow comes, these truths might hold us. That we would encourage each other with great grace and truth as we stand alongside one another in suffering to remind each other that God is there. To remind each other that God stands behind all things. That He is good. And that all things work together to accomplish your purposes. For your glory and our good. That when we shout with doubt, then when we struggle because the sky will seem black and you seem absent, that we would be reminded that you are with us. That even now those who are hurting in this church would know that you hurt with them. That you're near. That like the psalmist, their cries and their complaints would be directed towards you. That you would not be taken out of the equation, but every cry and every complaint would be poured out to you. And that all that was meant for evil, that you would turn and mean for good. And we pray that you would give us great and renewed affection for Jesus Christ. You are so patient to put up with all of our accusations and to take on a sentence you did not deserve. To suffer, to be familiar with sorrows, to be acquainted with grief. We thank you that you stood in our place and suffered for us. You face suffering well so that in you we might do the same. Answer this prayer much better than we have prayed it. Answer more than we have asked for. In Jesus' name, amen.